If you have your Bibles tonight, we'll go to Daniel chapter 1. We're in verse number 8. But Daniel chapter 1 and verse number 8, and I want to jump just kind of right to the text tonight. So as you turn there, if you're able to stand, you can stand with me and kind of stretch your legs here one last time. If you're not able to stand, that is okay. Just don't feel pressured at all. Stay seated if you need to. Daniel 1, verse number 8. We're going to read to the end of the chapter. So we're going to cover a pretty big portion here, 8 through verse 21. But we'll begin in verse number 8 where we left off last week. So Daniel 1, verse 8 says this. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. And that's where we cut it last week. Therefore, he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now God had brought Daniel into favor and tender love with the prince of the eunuchs. And the prince of the eunuchs said unto Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who hath appointed your meat and your drink. For why should he see your faces worse liking than the children which are of your sort? Then shall ye make me endanger my head to the king. Then Daniel said to Melzar, whom the prince of the eunuchs had set over, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Nazariah, Prove thy servants, I beseech thee, ten days. Let them give us pulse to eat and water to drink. Then let our countenances be looked upon before thee, and the countenance of the children that eat the portion of the king's meat, and as thou seest, deal with thy servants. So he, Melzar, consented to them in this matter and proved them ten days. Verse 15. And at the end of ten days, their countenances appeared fairer and fatter in flesh than all the children which did eat the portion of the king's meat. Thus Melzar took away the portion of their meat and the wine that they should drink and gave them pulse. As for these four children... God gave them knowledge and skill and all learning and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now at the end of the days that the king had said he should bring them in, then the prince of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king communed with them, and among them, among them all was found none like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, therefore stood they before the king. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding that the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers that were in all his realm. And Daniel continued even into the first year of King Cyrus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for tonight. I thank you that we can assemble together, that we can worship you, who above all you thought of us when you were crucified. Lord, we thank you for that gift. We don't, we don't take it lightly, and you are worthy to be praised truly. Lord, I pray that you would take control of the service tonight. I pray that you'd help me, that you would clear my mind and for a few moments enable me to focus strictly on your word and what you'd have for us here tonight. Lord, I pray that you would stir our hearts as we wade deeper into the pages of Daniel and what you have for us. We love you and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for standing. You may be seated. The United Kingdom is currently building a royal research ship costing more than 260 American dollars. That's 200 uh, pounds in England. And this world-class vessel is due to set sail in 2019, and it's part of the UK's Explorer program. In the spring of this year, the NERC, which stands for Natural Environment Research Council, decided it was time to name the ship. So they took an unusual approach to naming this, and they decided to crowdsource the naming of this vessel, which is a depiction of how it will look. They decided to crowdsource this naming, and they set up a website where citizens could go and make name suggestions or vote on already given name suggestions to decide what they would name this ship. And after the voting con concluded, this was in early May, here are the top three votes that they received. Third place with 15,000 votes, was the RRS, which stands for Royal Research Ship, Henry Worsley. I don't know who Henry Worsley is, but apparently he's popular enough to get 15,000 votes. Second place, with double that, 34,000 votes, was the RRS Poppy Mai. And in first place, receiving more than 124,000 votes, so first place by a long shot, was the RRS Bodie McBoatface. I don't know who came up with Bodie McBoatface, but they're a genius. They are a child prodigy to think 
to name the royal research ship of the United Kingdom, this world-class vessel that will be in a league of its own, Bodie McBoatface. And days after the voting ended, the science minister, Joe Johnson, he announced on May the 6th that the boat would in fact be named RRS David Attenborough and decided that he was not going to go with Bodie McBoatface, but he was going to choose the naturalist uh, David Attenborough to name the boat. And here is uh, an illustration of a science minister who had determined in his heart that we will put this to the people. We'll let them vote. We'll let them decide what we want to name this ship. But when push came to shove, that resolve dissolved. And he no longer was willing to do that. He wanted to kind of backtrack and do something altogether different. And tonight, I want to speak for just a few moments on this topic. Don't let your resolve dissolve. Thus far, we've covered to to Daniel 1 verse 8, and we found that Daniel does have this resolve in his heart. He's purposed. He is, he's steadfast. He's unmoved. I'm going to do this. But we know it's easy to let a decision or to let a purpose or to let this this bulldog grip on I'm going to do this dissipate and begin to dissolve. And it's sometimes difficult for us to turn our resolve into action. But Daniel does not. Daniel is a great example of someone who not just resolves internally but turns it into action. I don't know if you followed any of the politics this week, but the... The RNC just happened in Cleveland. The DNC is happening, I believe, starting tomorrow. And I really didn't watch any of it. I'm not really, really big into into politics. But I did watch one part after the fact. I watched the video of Senator Ted Cruz refusing to endorse Donald Trump, the GOP nominee. And I found that enlightening because months prior, Senator Cruz had stood on a platform in a debate, and I watched that debate in front of millions of Americans, and had said, whoever the GOP nominates, I promise I will support them. And he stood just a few months later on a stage and refused to keep his word, and he let his resolve dissolve. And whether, whether you're a fan of Trump or Cruz or anybody else or not is beside the point. Whether you're Republican or Democrat is entirely beside the point. The point is that here was a man who was resolved to make a decision and to do something, but somehow in the past few weeks that has dissolved and he's no longer willing to do it. And we can find in our own lives, lest we're we're hypocritical, that we too can have these moments where we're resolved, we're steadfast, we make the decision, we know this is best, this is what God wants for us, but we backtrack on it. How many decisions have been made in these seats right in front of me that when the person walked out the door, suddenly that resolve dissolved and it went away? How many of us have resolved to be honest, but then we found ourselves in a scenario where lying would give us a leg up on the competition and suddenly it wasn't so easy to be honest anymore? It's easy for us to stand against corruption unless we actually do have to stand against it and it's our boss and we have to turn them in for it. It's easy for us to hold a high moral standard until our lusts are unleashed and suddenly we're the one that has to wrestle with the temptation. It is easy for us as Christians to have these moments where there's resolution. That's the easy part. But standing is tough. Standing is hard. Actually putting action to our decision is not as easy as it may seem sometimes. And what we find here is that Daniel did more than purpose. Daniel did more than resolve. He did more than decide. It was more than the internal. He was able to turn this into action. He was able to externally work out what he had purposed in his own heart, and he was able to put some legs to what he had decided in his own heart and life, and he manifested this decision into action. And the question is, how did he do this? What was his formula, so to speak? How did he go about turning his resoluteness and his purpose into real tangible action? And I think that we can find 
if he did it this way, maybe we could employ the same methods and do the same in our own hearts and lives. So I want us just to dissect this passage, and we'll start with verse number 8. And first is we see an uncompromising purpose. I won't belabor this because we hit it last week. But the point of verse number 8 is that Daniel does purpose in his heart. He is fixed. He is resolute. He's determined. He has a bulldog grip on what he knows he should do and what he's going to do. This is a non-negotiable for him. His line in the sand has been drawn. Daniel has purposed in his heart. And this is a biblical decision for him. This is a personal decision for him. He's not going around preaching to everybody else. But in his own heart, in his own life, in his own mind, he's determined that he is going to stand, that he's not going to eat the king's meat. He's not going to drink the wine. And as, as I see this unfold, I see that Daniel takes kind of an unusual approach to this. And his his idea of walking in God's re revealed will and doing what God told him to do no matter what the cost manifests itself in an unusual way. So we see, yes, an uncompromising purpose, but then we see this, an unassertive request. Look at verse number 8, and we'll find that Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat nor with the wine which he drank. So great, congratulations, we give Daniel two thumbs up, you're doing a good job, way to go, non-negotiables. But then this happens. Therefore, he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. As, as I read verse number 8 and I see this, this culmination of he purposes, I'm expecting a throw the money changers tables over approach. I'm expecting Daniel, if I was to play it out in my own mind or make a movie out of this, this is not what I would write. I would have Daniel sitting in the king's palace. He knows he's resolved. I'm not going to eat this. He's wondering if the king's meat and the drink is going to come in. He's sitting there at a table, a long table, with all the other friends and all the other captives and the prince of the eunuchs. And in walks the servants with their silver platter and, their, and the silver top. And they're walking towards him and Daniel's sitting down thinking, it better not be me. It better not. It better follow kosher. This had better not. You better not give me what I think you. And his blood starts to boil, and his fists begin to clench. And sure enough, the the servant walks up and he pulls back the lid, and there is the meat, and there is the wine. And Daniel shoves himself from the table and slaps it out of his hands. And, Get that out of my face! I, that's how I. That's how I picture Daniel doing this. This bulldog grip. I expect this tenacity to come out of him. I expect like a Hulk smash moment in Daniel's life right here, but it doesn't, that doesn't happen. It is, it is this unassertive request that Daniel makes to the prince of the eunuchs, and he, and he basically just asks him, hey, do you think I could forgo this? Could you, could you just excuse me from eating this? I don't, I don't want to eat this. He doesn't have this sit-down, big, powwow, volcanic eruption moment that I am anticipating to happen as I read through the passage. He, there's, no, there's no demands in Daniel. There is no hunger strike. There is no rebellion. There is no yelling. Daniel is not going to boycott Babylon. We have it right now, boycotting is very popular and whether you're boycotting JCPenney's or Target or anybody else's, that's between you and the Lord. You can do what you like. But truth be told, I need like a computer programmer and an algorithm to keep up with who I'm supposed to be boycotting all the time. If, if I really looked at all the major corporations that have something that's against Christian values and against what I believe, then I'm never going to be able to buy any, anything from anywhere. And, but Daniel has this, he's not boycotting. He's, he's not rebelling. He's not refusing in an outward, hey, it's, it's not a conversation with Ashpenaz, like, Ashpenaz, let me tell you something, buddy. I'm not touching that. That, does, that never happens in his life. He just goes to him, and the Bible says that he requests of the prince of the eunuchs that he shouldn't eat the meat. And he just asks him, hey, do you think that I could forgo having this? It goes against my belief structure. And honestly, what wisdom, what wisdom that Daniel knew when to stand, yes, but he also knew how to stand. I think that he understood that my rebellion and refusal in this grr, tenacity is not going to play well with the people who are, who are dominating me and I am their captive. He knows 
yes, when to stand, but he also knows how to stand. And I think that we could take a page from his book, possibly. Possibly, if we find ourselves in a moment where we need to stand, we could try this out. If, if the Little League coach is scheduling all the games on Sunday, instead of, let me tell you something, coach. If you put a game on Sunday, my kid nor none of my kids will ever play a game for you. We could start, possibly, first with, hey, coach, thanks for all your work. I really appreciate it. You know, me and my wife, we make Sunday a big deal. We set it aside for God. Is there any way we could reschedule the games on Sunday and not play? Or is there a way that my kids could be excluded from playing? A simple request may happen. My wife and I find ourselves in this scenario. Right now we're expecting our second, and every time we get pregnant, we brace ourselves for some sort of conversation with the doctor where they're, they're going to want us to do some sort of genetics testing on our kids. And there's, there's maybe a host of reasons why you would or wouldn't do that. We feel at, at our heart that we're going to love and accept and, and take this kid no matter what. It doesn't matter what the genetics testing says. So really it would be a waste of our money and a waste of insurance's money to do this. And, and we'll see what happens and, and what God gives us. But my approach to that probably shouldn't be, you know what? I looked that doctor right in her eye and I told her, I'm not going to do this genetics testing. I know that you want to see if there's some defect, and if everything's not perfect, you're going to recommend that we think about abortion. And I gave her the business. A simple approach could probably just be, hey, doc, we really don't see the need for that. We're going to love our kid no matter who or what or how they come out. So let's just forgo this and save ourselves some money. Daniel takes this approach of just a simple, a simple request, very unassertive, very unassuming, that, hey, Ashpenaz, do you think I could get an exemption from, from eating this meat, from drinking this wine? There are times in our lives where a wag will do us more good than a bark. And I'm not saying never bark. I'm not saying never have grit. But we should, we should step back and ask ourselves, are, are we going full-fledged at this and maybe a little more aggressive than we should? Let's just try a simple request. That's what Daniel did. And I noticed not just his request, but I see this in unashamed boldness. Inside of this request, although it was a request, I find great boldness in Daniel. Look at the very end of verse 8. You can skip over this if you're not careful. It says that, therefore, he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Daniel does not skate around the issue. Was he arrogant? No. Was he defiant? No. But did Daniel give some lame excuse for why he didn't want to eat the meat? Did Daniel tell him, you know what, Ashpenaz, I got food allergies, man. This really, it's just not going to sit well with me. Do you think maybe I could, you know, I just prefer water. That's, I just like to drink a lot of water all the time. My doctor says that I need at least 200 ounces a day. That's not what Daniel says to Ashpenaz. He includes in his request although it's meek and humble, he includes this boldness of, I don't want to eat this because that will defile me. Here is my spiritual reason for why I want to forgo eating this meat, for why I want to forgo drinking this drink. And this is more than just let me forgo. He declares what he thinks is right and wrong inside of his request. And truth be told, there's a lesson to learn for us as well. How many times are you going to have to tell your coworkers, no, I'm going to skip out on drinks tonight with you until you really give them the reason? Is it, is it just constantly going to be, uh, you know, I just got to get home to the wife and kids? Is it constantly going to be, you know, I just got a lot going on. I don't think I can. Thanks for the invite, though. Or is there going to be a moment where, yes, you forgo, and yes, you hold to your convictions, and you don't, you don't delve into it, but you tell them the real reason. You give them, no, I'm not going to, but here is actually why. Because I'm a Christian, because Jesus died for me, here's what I'm living in light of, and here's what the actions that I think I should exude as a Christian, and let me tell you a little bit about it. That's a unique opportunity for you. When, when you have a moment where you can take a stand, instead of turning it into this friction and clash in this giant fight with somebody, turn it into a gospel witness. 
use it in your own heart and life and in their heart and life to say, you know what, I don't do that. And let me tell you a little bit why. Let me, t- let me tell you why I would think this way. Let me put you in a Christian perspective for a moment and, and maybe influence you. My wife and I both found this in jobs that we worked in. She worked for an online company called Build.com. Some of you may have ordered home improvement stuff from them at some point in time. I experienced this just a couple months ago at Verizon at a store I was managing. And we have a, I would call it a standard. It's not a non-negotiable, but it's a standard for us that we're not going to ride in a car with the opposite sex alone. And like I said, that's a standard. That's, that's nowhere in the Bible that thou shalt not do that. Our conviction is that we want a pure marriage, that obviously adultery is wrong, that we don't want to get divorced, and that's a standard that helps us support that. Now, like I said, it's not a non-negotiable, it's not dogmatic. If I'm driving up the hill to church and it's raining like it is tonight, and, and one, of, one of you ladies is walking up the hill, I'll, I'll stop and pull over to get you out of the rain. You know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not crazy or fanatic about it, but it's a standard that we have, okay? But we both found ourselves when we were working in scenarios where a training came up for work, and I was supposed to go to this training, and so was this female coworker that I worked with, or my wife was supposed to go to this training three hours away, and so was this male coworker you work with. And it's just common sense that you would ride together. Why take two cars? Why waste the gas money? Why? I mean, you work at the same place. You're leaving from the same place. You're coming back to the same place. Why would you take separate cars? But it presented these, these weird moments for us where we had to have these conversations of, you know, th- this, this, I know this is probably foreign to you, and it may even be weird, but here's, here's a, what me and my wife have. Here's kind of something we've set up in our marriage. Would it be all right if we just took separate cars? Now, that conversation isn't fun. It's awkward, to tell you the truth. It's real awkward. But you know what we found? When we made those requests, people were willing to oblige. Most of the time, people say, you know, that may not be my personal what I would do, but I get it. Okay. I understand where you're coming from. I understand why you would think that. I understand as a Christian why you would think that way or why you would behave that way or why you would not behave that way. I found every job I've, I've ever worked in the secular world, as soon as I started, you know, first week, how many requests come to hang out with us after work at the bars, to, to go drinking with us, to go party with us? Every single one. But, you know, around week number two, all those stopped because I just told them not just no, but no, and I'm, I'm not going to, and here's the reason why. And then they all dried up, and I didn't have to mess with it for all the months and years to come that I worked at the job. So giving a reason, giving a here is why I would do this, having a boldness about here's what I believe is important. And Daniel has this. He doesn't scapegoat the issue. He doesn't ignore it. He doesn't sweep it under the rug. He tells Ashpenaz, can, can I request not to do this? But here's why. I don't want to defile myself. First Peter tells us that we're to be ready always to give an answer, and it's for the reason of the hope that's in us, but it says that it's with meekness and fear, having a good conscience. That that verse tells us, yes, we need to have a message. Yes, we need to stand for what we believe in. We need to tell people, but our attitude is just as important as our message, and our message is just as important as our attitude, that both go hand in hand. We, should, we shouldn't want to have a knockdown, drag-out brawl when we have to stand every single time. It can just be a simple request. But at the same time, our, our attitude and our message should be included. It should be, here is why I do this. I'm not ashamed about it. I'm bold about it. I'm a Christian. Here's why I would, and here is why I would not. And what I personally find, you may be different than this, but what I personally find is that when I take a stand, but I refuse to tell someone why, the good conscience goes away. My conscience begins to weigh on me. And it begins to tell me, you should have gone a little further. It's not just have a non-negotiable, but you should have gone a little further and been a witness and had some boldness about what you believe and why you believe it. But then we see this in verse number nine. I see an uncanny favor. This is, a, this is an interesting verse to me. Verse number nine says, now God had brought Daniel into favor and tender love with the prince of the eunuchs. And what a little reminder that God is still sovereign through chaos and he is still working behind the scenes. That God brings Daniel into favor. And it says favor there. That's the the Hebrew word has said, which is kindness or goodwill. Then it says tender love, which means basically deep sympathy. 
that God somehow, some way, had worked in Ashpenaz's heart, this unbeliever, this Babylonian, and had worked in such a way that he had given him some sympathy and some goodwill and some kindness towards Daniel, and God is orchestrating and working this, and he's, he's doing this. And we see that when Daniel is an A-plus believer, when he stands up and does what's right, that God uses that in the heart and life of an Ashpenaz. And when we do the same thing, when our attitude and our message is on point, many, many times God will use that in the heart of our coworker or our boss or our neighbor or our unsaved loved ones to, to bring them to a point where God starts to work and God starts to kind of churn their heart a little bit to be more receptive toward the gospel because we took a stand in a proper way. But then we see this in verse number 10, an unexpected rejection. Up until this point, well, I'll read verse number 10. Look at verse number 10. And the prince of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear the Lord my king, who hath appointed your meat and your drink, for why should he see your faces worse liking than the children that are of your sort? Then shall ye make me endanger my head to the king. Up until this point, if you're, I'm reading it, and I'm feeling like Ashpenaz is going to give Daniel whatever he wants. He's going to let Daniel have his way, so to speak. He's going to ask, acquiesce. He's going to give him what he wants. But you find out it wasn't a yes. And that surprises me. That's unexpected to me that here you have Daniel purposes. Daniel has the right attitude, and he makes a request, but he includes his message of, I'm not going to defile myself. And God is working in Ashpenaz's heart and giving him goodwill and sympathy and tenderness for Daniel. And then he says, no. That, that catches me off guard. That after all this, it feels like God is setting the stage for this pinnacle moment of, yes, you took a stand and everything's going to work out great. But you find that Ashpenaz tells him, nope, sorry, <laughs> can't do it. You're going to have to eat that. You're going to have to drink that. This is not something that I'm willing to give into. And truth be told, Daniel did the right thing, and it didn't go well. He got a no, and he really needs a yes because he has purpose in his heart. Daniel has stood. Daniel has the right attitude. He has the right message. And he still gets a no from Ashpenaz. And do not be deceived into thinking that if you stand for right, life is a bed of roses. We, we tell ourselves that if I do the right thing, if I'm good, deep down we think life will go well. And it's untrue. It's false. Daniel did the right thing, even in the right way, and he doesn't get a yes. Paul does the right thing. We looked at him this morning in Athens. Paul goes to Jerusalem. He does the right thing. He gives the gospel. He gives Jesus in the religious capital of the world, and they mob him. Then he goes to Athens, the intellectual capital of the world. He does the right thing. He gives them Jesus, and they mock him. And then he goes to Rome, the political capital of the world. He does the right thing. He gives them Jesus, and they martyr him. You find out that John the Baptist takes a big stand for right, and he gets his head cut off. Jesus lives a perfect life, never does any wrong, stands for right 100% of the time without any wrongdoing, and they nail him to a cross. Standing for right does not equate life going well. Jesus, we shouldn't be deceived by this, but somehow we are. Jesus even said that we should bless them that curse us. We should pray for them which despitefully use us and persecute us. And the, the inclination there is that people are going to curse us that people are going to hate us, that people are going to use us, that people are going to persecute us in some way, shape, or form. And Jesus told us that all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But somehow we've rooted ourselves in our American Christianity to this idea that if I do right, I take a stand, then just mark it down, God owes me. If, if I do right, then God owes me that I, I'm doing the right thing so you have to make this work out in a right way. And we, we, where do we get off thinking that God owes us something? We stand because it's right. 
We stand because we're commanded. We stand because Jesus stood for us and took our punishment and our shame, not because we're guaranteed a, a bed of roses and a picnic all the time. And Daniel's experiencing this. He's experiencing that I did the right thing, but somehow I get rejected because of it. I, I almost feel like it's this junior high boy working up the courage to ask the junior high girl to the little Valentine's banquet, and, she, and, and he, he does it, he does all the right things, and he has the little croissage set aside, and he goes up to her, and she just tells him no. That's what I feel like Daniel's going through right now. He has extreme rejection here because he needs a yes, but he just did not get it. But you find included in this, it's not just this re rejection, but there really is some undeniable logic. Ashpenaz doesn't owe Daniel an explanation. He doesn't owe him logic. He could tell him, shut up and eat it. He, he doesn't owe him anything. But he does decide to give him a logical reason for why he's telling Daniel no, because I don't think he wants to. But here's what he says in verse number 10. He says, I fear the Lord my king. So I fear Nebuchadnezzar. I'm scared. Who hath appointed your meat and your drink? He said, look, I didn't, I didn't select the menu, man. Nebuchadnezzar selected the menu. It's good stuff. For why should he, Nebuchadnezzar, see your face as worse liking than the children which are of your sort? Ashpenaz has been around the block. He knows that Daniel's going to be presented to Nebuchadnezzar eventually. And he says, look, he's going to see you, and he's going to think, that guy just doesn't look like everybody else. And when he sees that, then shall ye make me endanger my head to the king. Now, now, this is literal. He is not speaking in hyperbole here. His fear is very well grounded because Nebuchadnezzar is no man's fool and life is very cheap in Babylon, even if you're a high-ranking official like Ashpenaz is. Ashpenaz understands that Nebuchadnezzar will not hesitate to put him down if he doesn't do what he's told. You find it's so interesting to study these Assyrian and Babylonian and Greek kings and, and kind of the authority that they ruled with. But when you find Nebuchadnezzar, you see that 20 years after this, a Judah is going to revolt against the rule and the oppression of Babylon. And Jerusalem is going to try to band forces with Egypt. And they're going to try to get out from under this oppression and this taxation that King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians have put upon them. And what you'll find is it doesn't work out well. Babylon wins. They break down the walls to the city. They destroy the temple. They burn everything. And they, they take King Zedekiah and they put him before King Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar kills all of his children before Zedekiah. And then he plucks out Zedekiah's eyes. So the last thing he saw was his children being murdered. This Nebuchadnezzar is not to be trifled with. Next chapter, we'll find that Nebuchadnezzar wants his astrologers and magicians not just to interpret a dream, but to tell him what he dreamed. And when they tell him, King, that's crazy. No one can tell you what you dreamed. He says, kill them all. Just kill them all. Everybody, every magician and astrologer in the whole kingdom, I'll just get some more captives and start this program over again. Kill them all. I mean, what kind of a request is that to interpret, not just interpret someone's dream, but tell them their dream? Dreams are weird. How many of you have like super weird dreams? I had a super weird dream the other night that is still vivid, and I won't rehearse at all, but I mean, there was this bird thing that I don't know where it came from. I think one of the kids showed me their Pokemon Go app, and it had to come from like a Pokemon character because it was weird, and there was this like King Kong-sized gorilla. I'm not making this up. This gorilla that was after us who was wearing like this white shirt with these frills on it. I mean, it was just, it was the strangest thing in the world. I woke up and thought, where did that come from? And this king wants people, don't just interpret my dream, you tell me what I dreamed. That's humanly impossible, and he's going to kill them all because of it. So Ashpenaz's fears are well-grounded. They're rooted in reality. And he says, look, it's going to be off with my head if this doesn't go well. And, and he knows this is true, and he gives a very kind of undeniable logic to Daniel of, hey, man, I'd love to help you out here but I'm not willing to die because of it. I am not willing to put my neck on the line over some meat and some drink. So the answer, I'm sorry to say, is no, buddy. Then we find this, unwavering persistence. Look in verse number 11. 
It says, Daniel said to himself, well, I tried. Time to shut up and get with the pro. No, it doesn't say that at all. Daniel does not take this approach of, well, you know, I, I guess we'll have to get him next year. Daniel's persistence comes into play. And we see verse 11. Daniel said to Melzar, whom the prince of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, prove thy servants, I beseech thee, ten days, and let them give us pulse to eat and water to drink. Then let our countenances be looked upon before thee, and the countenance of the children that eat the portion of the king's meat. And as thou seest, deal with thy servants. Daniel, he kind of goes Billy May status on him here. He, he takes this like, I will give you a 10-day money-back guarantee. Just try this, man. Just give it a shot. And for good measure, I'll throw in my buddies. They have now joined forces. They want to do it too. Just compare us. If it doesn't work out well, then we can just scratch the whole program and go back. And he comes up with this unique scenario, but he is persistent with Melzar. And, and the bottom line is he's not willing to eat the king's meat, and he's going to make it happen one way or another. He's going to come somehow, some way to this moment where someone gives in and acquiesces and says, okay, you don't have to eat that. Because I believe with all my heart, he has purposed to go to the death with this. We see that the boys are willing to do this with the fiery furnace, with the lion's den trial later in the book, that he's willing to go that far. And Daniel, he has this persistence of I have to find some way somehow for this to work out. So he goes to Melzar, which is interesting to me because it's lower down the food chain. You would think that he would maybe petition the king or go above. That's our approach, right? If my boss says no, my solution is to email his boss, to get someone higher than him, to trump him and to trump his authority to give me a yes. But Daniel takes an interesting approach. He's very creative with this solution. He doesn't just tell them, okay, you know what? You said no. I refuse hunger strike. He comes up with, with a different approach. He comes up with a different answer. I think there's a lot for us to learn there and how maybe we can approach scenarios in a workplace that were initially told no and it goes against our conscience, how we could kind of come at it maybe from a different angle. But Daniel goes to someone lower down the food chain, Melzar, and asks him, hey, not, not just an all-out let us forgo this, but could you give us 10 days? 10 days. Try us out. At the end of 10 days, stack us up in a lineup over here. Stack the people who ate the meat up over here. See which ones look better. Test it for yourself. Take the trial period and see what could happen if you, if you allow us to do this. And there are, there are times, even in our own lives, where we have to go, quote, unquote, lower down the food chain to be able to take a stand. I, I think of right now, there's a lot going on inside of our public school system, and a big issue right now that's been the past few months in the news has been a lot of this trans, transgender issues. And my wife and I moved here from California a year and a half ago, and what's interesting to me is that that was passed into law, all those, those laws and that issue was passed into law to where uh, boys can use girls' locker rooms and girls can use boys' locker rooms and things like that years ago in California. Like that battle has already, that battle has already been fought, that battle's already been lost. That's, that's been long said and done. But it's surfacing in big ways for us right now in the news. And, and that has happened a long time ago. Interesting, interesting enough, just about a week and a half ago, July 14th, the, uh, the California State Board of Education did something else. I want to I read you a little bit of what happened just maybe uh, 10 days ago in California. And really the bathroom stuff is a thing of the past. And they... The Board of Education unanimously approved Thursday. This is Thursday, July the 14th. They approved an update to the state's public school curriculum incorporating, some of you may have seen this in the news, you may not have, incorporating LGBT issues into the history and the social science. The history and social sciences framework will now integrate LGBT curriculum into the elementary, middle school, and high school classes and teachers, this is, this is startling to me, teachers are encouraged to read stories to second grade students featuring a quote-unquote very diverse collection of families, including families with lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender parents and their children. The framework cautions teachers not to assume any particular family structure and ask questions in a way that will easily include children from diverse family backgrounds. 
The history classes starting in fourth grade will include a study on Harvey Milk, who was a pioneering gay politician in San Francisco, and middle and high school courses will examine changing gender roles in the 18th, 19th, and 20th century, emphasizing artists and figures who transgress transitional norms and values. They have, just uh, 10 days ago, approved that said the curriculum from elementary all the way on up, we're changing it this year. And we are including sections in our history books and our social studies to, to work in gay, transgender, and, and bisexual issues into the curriculum. I say that for this reason. You, you would think if I went to the California State Board of Education and asked them, hey, can I start a Bible club in, uh, in Pleasant Valley High School in Chico, California? Can I start a Bible club in Fairview High School? Can I start a Bible club in, in Chico High? I dare say, I never asked them, but I dare say they would unanimously tell me no. I dare say I would be mocked for asking that question. But you know what I found? I, I, didn't, have to, I didn't have to write somebody high up the food chain. I didn't have to fight it out. All I had to do was go to a principal of a school and say, hey, we'd like to start a Bible club. Would you be okay with that? And you know what I found? Pleasant Valley High School principal said, yeah. If you can find a teacher to give you a room, have at it. Chico High principal said, yeah, if, if you can find a couple students to create a structure in, in a club structure, have at it. The Fairview High, the worst high school in, in the county by far, principal looked at me and said, I have been praying for a year that God would send somebody to do this. I found that I didn't need the Board of Education's approval to go start a Bible club or to, or to take a stand inside these public schools. There were people much lower down the food chain that if I asked them, they would allow me to do it. If I just went to them and made a request to them, had a meeting with them, that they would allow me to, to do this. And it could be in your workplace or in your neighborhood that you don't have to email the owner of the company, that you don't have to ask the person who's in charge of the neighborhood watch. You may just have to go to your neighbor or go to your boss that's right above you and make a request to them, and you'll, you may surprisingly find that you'll get a yes that you won't have to have this moment where I'm going to quit my job because of what I'm standing for. You may find a little bit lower down, like Daniel did, that you are able to, that you are able to find someone to acquiesce to you and to help you. We find this in verse number 14. He gets a yes from Melzar. And he says, okay, I'll give you 10 days. We'll, tr we'll do the trial. And we find this an unbelievable victory. Look in verse 14. So Melzar consented to them. So that's victory number one. He finally gets a yes from somebody. He consents to them in this matter and proved them 10 days. So this is a big deal. Daniel needs these 10 days to go well. He needs for this to work out. Verse 15. At the end of 10 days, their countenances appeared fairer and fatter in flesh than all the children which did eat the portion of the king's meat. Thus... Melzar took away the portion of their meat and the wine that they should drink and gave them pulse. He acquiesces. He says, okay, I'll give in. At the end of 10 days, you know what you find? God comes through. God gives a victory. Some people have tried to look at this and say, ah, we shouldn't make too much of it. It's probably not that supernatural. I mean, vegetables are kind of good for you. Water is kind of good for you. But I say, when I look at this, the one word that stands out to me is in verse 15. That their countenances appeared fairer. Okay, I get that. They're eating healthy. They're, they're detoxing to some degree. What else does it look fatter? How in the world do you, eat, do you eat vegetables and drink water for 10 days and end up being fatter? If that's not a miracle, I don't know what is. If, we, if you try that diet, and if, like if I'm going to eat vegetables and water for 10 days, I don't know if there's any vegetarians in the room. I'm personally not. If I'm going to do that, unless like Cheetos are, are vegetables. But if I'm going to do that, I expect like day one to be weighing in at least 10 pounds less. Like that is, that's torturous to do to yourself, vegetables and water only. And we find, I think it's a miracle that he, 10 days of water and vegetables with his buddies and they look fairer and fatter. And I wish that somehow, some way we could like reverse engineer this miracle. Sometimes we do that in our prayers. We pray this prayer of, Lord, I pray that you will bless this food to my body, help it to give me the nutrition that I need. And, and what, are, what, are we, what are we eating? We're, we're eating like pizza and soda and Twinkies. And if we could somehow reverse engineer this 
and make it to where, like, instead of vegetables and water make us fat, hey, Twinkies and soda can make us skinny, that would be fantastic. That would be a page from Daniel's life that I would love to apply to my own life and implement in some way, shape, or form. Because we already do it. We already pray it to some degree. We have like our supersized Mountain Dew, Code Red, made with real cane sugar, infused with extra calories. We're like, dear Lord, please help this to give me the nutrition that I need. And we have the Doritos in the other hand, you know, change the molecular structure of these Doritos into carrots, just transubstantiate it and make, we already pray this way Anyway, so I think that there is a biblical precedent for praying that God would somehow, in some way, shape, or form, nutritionally bless the trash that we give ourselves. But the point is this. It's a victory. It's a victory. At the end of 10 days, Melzar looks at him and says, man, you guys look better. All right. You don't have to eat the meat. You don't have to drink the wine for the next three years. You get what you want. I give in. You are going to, you're going to have the request. You are not going to have to do this. You don't have to go against your conscience. And God gives them a victory. And truly it was. I can't imagine the amount of prayer that went into those 10 days of, Lord, help this to work out well. Help Melzar somehow put blinders on his eyes or make him see us in such a way that, that we look better so that we can have this approval. Then we find this. We see an unbelievable victory, but lastly, an unearthly blessing. Look at verse 17. As for these four children, God, God gave them knowledge and skill and all learning and wisdom. And Daniel, so Daniel gets an extra blessing, had understanding and visions and dreams. Now at the end of these days, so three years later, <clears throat> the Bible says at the end of these days, that the king had set, he should bring them in. Then the prince of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. So now is the time Ashpenaz comes in. I present to you the graduating class of 503 B.C. Daniel, Hananiah, Ezra, and he presents them all to King Nebuchadnezzar. And verse 19, king communed with them, and among them all was found none like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. Therefore stood they before the king. This is what they had originally selected them for. They wanted men with ability to stand in the king's court, and they got it. Verse 20, in all matters of wisdom and understanding that the king inquired of them, he found them, these four boys, Daniel and his companions, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers that were in all his realm. And Daniel continued into the first year of King Cyrus. It should be noted, this is Daniel continued beyond the first year of King Cyrus. This is basically saying he worked all the Babylonian years. Daniel was there in the king's court all the Babylonian years. And we find this, this blessing. And it's, and it's all preceded with verse number 17, that God gives them knowledge and skill. God does this. God works the miracle. The longer I live, the more that I realize wisdom comes from God. That, that James was, he was onto something when he wrote 1.5. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. You never know what God's going to do when you take a stand, but you find that God does a miracle in Daniel's life. God does all throughout Daniel chapter 1. You see this backdrop of God's sovereignty that God gives Jehoiakim and God uh, brings Ashpenaz into favor with Daniel and God gives them wisdom and God gives them understanding that God does this. Just uh, Thursday, Pastor Smith and myself went to visit a shut-in, Annabelle Stone, and he, he was going to do it and he just invited me along for the ride and I'm glad that he did. And she lives very close to the, to the Kenneth Avenue property, which I had seen in some videos, but I had never personally been by the property. And I was telling him that and he said, well, let's, let's just drive right by there. We're in the neighborhood, so let's, let's go right there. And I drove by that property, and then we left, and we, and we came down Torino Bridge Road and across the bridge, jumped on the 28, and then we started coming up this property. And I couldn't help but think, look at what God has done. Look, look, at, look at what and where Harvest was and where we are today. We drove up, and I Honestly, the thoughts of the psalmist popped in my head that this is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. That, that get some perspective 
even for us personally, corporately, as a church, of what God has done in, in our hearts and lives. Right now, my son, he's two, and we're teaching him little verses. We're teaching him Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and he loves the end. Genesis 1-1, and he throws up his fingers like that. And we're teaching him, Brennan, who made the moon? God did. Who made the stars? God did. Who made you? God did. And that's his answer to who made whatever. Who made Cheetos? God did. You know, that's, that's his answer to everything, that God made it all. God did. God did. God. But that's what we find in Daniel, that every portion of this, God just keeps sprinkling in these nuggets of God's doing this. God is giving the nation over. God is in control. God is giving them wisdom. God is giving them understanding. God is the one who's going to shut the mouths of lions. God's the one who's going to deliver them from the fiery furnace. God's the one who has blessed harvest up until this point. God's the one who's blessed you. God's the one who's given you the kids that you have. God's the one who saved you from your sin, even though you did not deserve it. And 10 years from now, we'll look back at 2016 and 2017, and we'll say, how did that happen? Who did that? God did. God did it. God worked all of this out in a supernatural, unearthly way that he is the one pulling the strings. He is behind the curtain. He is in control of all of this. And this whole book of Daniel, if the book of Daniel is a parade, you have God on a float front and center, and you have Daniel and Melzar and Ashpenaz and Hananiah and Mishael, Azariah, Nebuchadnezzar, and anyone else you want to throw in there, walking, along the, walking through the parade, alongside the float, just pointing up there and saying, look at God, look at God, look what he did. He's in control. He's the one that's doing this. He's the one that's orchestrating this. The whole book is about God's in control. God knows what he's doing, and he's doing it. And Daniel has, has enough wisdom as he writes this book later in life to say, look, God did this. God's the one that gave me the favor with Ashpenaz. I have no idea why Ashpenaz liked me. God, God did it. God's the one that gave me wisdom. How did I know that dream? How did I know the interpretation? I don't have any earthly idea. God worked it out. God did the miracle. God supernaturally did this. And what an eloquent testimony of the power and the grace of God in a very dark time in Israel's history the faithfulness of Daniel and his companions, we should note, shines all the brighter because it evidences God's grace and God's power inside of Israel's captivity, inside of Israel's apostasy. And truth be told for us as American Christians, it may be tougher for us to stand than it has ever been in any point in time in, in your life or in my life. But the darker the night, the brighter the light. It, it may be more difficult for us to stand right now than it was 10 years ago. But can I say, stand for God. Let your light shine brightly. Leave the rest up to him. Don't be a Christian that lets your resolve and your non-negotiables and your purpose dissolve. Daniel was able to put some legs to what he believed. He was able to put some action and externally breathe out what he believed internally and I think that we can take a note from him and that we can do the same.